Welcome to Mostly Books Meets. We're the team at Mostly Books, an award-winning independent bookshop in Abingdon. In this podcast series, we'll be speaking to authors, journalists, poets, and a range of professionals from the world of publishing. We'll be asking about the books that are special to them, from childhood favourites to the book that changed their life, and we hope you'll join us for the journey. It is my great pleasure to welcome onto the podcast this week, author Robert Edrick. Robert's first novel, Winter Garden, was published in 1986 and went on to win the James Tate Black Award. Since then, he has written a grand total of 28 novels, including Peacetime and Gathering the Water, which were both long-listed for the Booker Prize. The Telegraph described his backlist as one of the most extraordinary bodies of work to appear from a single author. Robert's latest book, A Memoir, is called My Own Worst Enemy and is a touching and vivid portrait of 1960s working-class Sheffield. At the core of this deeply engaging account of the bygone era is the relationship between a deeply insecure and overbearing father and his educated son. DJ Taylor, writing in The Spectator, described it as neatly written, psychologically acute and never disguising the hurt that lies at its core. This is a small masterpiece. Robert Edrick, welcome to Mostly Books Meets. Thank you. Thank you. Good to be here. Thank you. It's a pleasure to have you. To start us off, obviously the book focuses on a lot of this, but without giving too much away, for those who are listening, who have maybe not yet had a chance to read the book, could you tell us a little bit about your childhood, where you grew up and what life was like for you? Yes, of course. Uh, I grew up in Sheffield. I was born in 1956. I was born and for the first five years grew up in a tiny village, or it seemed like a tiny village then, just outside Sheffield. And when I was six, we moved into the centre to a very uh, built-up district, quite close to the steelworks and coking mills, lines of back-to-back terraces. And I grew up there. And when I was 11, I managed by I, you know, I, I don't really understand how because I didn't really understand how that particular system worked. I passed my 11 plus and went to an all boys grammar school for the next six or seven years of my life. Uh, and so I lived a life in a two and a half up, two and a half down back to back terraced house. And then every morning trotted off to a wainscotted grammar school in an old country house in the middle of a a municipal Mm. council estate full of wainscotted walls and Latin mottos and badges everywhere and and plaques to the war dead. It was a very strange existence. Uh, I remember the first six years very acutely and I I much enjoyed them, I think. I was a, a, a child much given to exploring and much given to working out things for himself. It was never a bookish household as such. How I became a writer is occasionally beyond me, but wasn't anything I considered until much later on. And I had a younger sister and a younger brother, and I left home at 18 to go to university, and they stayed where they were, and I never went back to live in Sheffield. I now live on the East Yorkshire coast, facing the cold North Sea. And so you said that you becoming a writer is sort of, you know, you sometimes can't say exactly where that came from. 
do you remember when it was that you first discovered books and reading? Yes, as I said, we didn't have many books in the house. And when I went to school, it was a very regimented, very well-organised regime at the boys' grammar school. I started reading there because I had to read there. There were set texts and I did English literature Mm. and English. And I started, for most of my life, up until about the age of 14 or 15, I, I honestly didn't really read. I read comics. I read Commando War comics. I read annuals at Christmas, which I looked forward to. But it was only when I was at school, and even then, we did the usual, we did the classic Shakespeare, Wordsworth. I did D.H. Lawrence, Sons and Lovers, which I I was impressed by, because I thought it was a a kind of reflection of my life, weirdly, 50 years earlier. And I didn't, I went to university and, and read geography. I was at university for seven years, and as part of my, the last half of that time, I did a, a, it researched a PhD in the structure of landscape in the Victorian novel, which was a strange thing to do as a geographer, but it meant I started reading. And since about the age of 19 or 20, I read voraciously. I read everything and anything these days. And it was possibly at the end of writing a 100,000-word thesis where you lit- everything has to be verified, backed up, and can be checked and, you know, argued against I thought wouldn't it be nice to be able to write something that no one gets their hooks into that is simply your production Mm. and I started writing books and novels and stories about the age 24 25 okay that's really interesting because it seems to be whenever you speak to a lot of authors it's always from a very early age that they were reading so would you say Sons and Lovers was the first book that made sort of an impression on you it did, I have to say. Yes, I mean, there was a great deal of substance. I, I do remember Sons and Lovers is, to coin a phrase, a book of two halves. The first half is about the working life of the miners. The second half is about the emotional existence of Paul Morell and his, his mother and, and, and the various women in his life. Mm. I think I went off the book in its second half. And I did, as part of my thesis, I did read everything else by D.H. Lawrence, which is, a, of course, a very mixed bag. I do remember being taken to a library uh, once a week or fortnight mm. and coming out with three books. But I do. Mm. I also remember if I read a book and enjoyed it, I read it again, literally okay. for the pleasure of reading it again and again and again. And then I discovered, of course, 10 years later, that life is far too short to reread books. I'm always amazed at the, when they have the Christmas roundup of books in the, the press, the people say, oh, you know, I'm rereading Aristotle, I'm rereading Tolstoy. Yeah. And I think, no, mate, life is far too short. There are thousands, <laughs> thousands upon thousands of books out there. Go and get started on one of them. And I, I do have a habit of... Uh, I know this sounds a terrible thing for a writer to say, but if I'm 100 pages into a book and I'm not enjoying it or I see it's not working, I do actually stop reading it. If I'm 200 pages into a book, I will get to the end. But there is a cutoff point, I'm afraid. Yeah. And I I think that's what a lot of people will be finding with a lot of things like Scandinavian crime fiction. I'm a great crime fan. uh, And there's a lot of bad crime fiction out there, I can tell you. (laughs) You've been through it, have you? And you've there's a lot of uh, I'm imagining a pile somewhere of crime fiction that's been stopped at the hundredth page, and that you've thought, no, nope, that's not for me. 
Uh, well, I mean, th there's also a factor. If the book is 800 pages long, how mm. much of yourself are you going to commit to it? A 200-page book, you can get to the end of it in a few hours. An 800-page book is a lot of commitment. Yeah. And I, I suspect, like a lot of readers, I have books for nighttime reading and books for daytime reading and books for... I'm suffering from insomnia a little at the moment. Oh, I tend okay. to wake up at four o'clock in the morning for an hour or two and then fall back to sleep. But it's a good time. I quite enjoy being able to lie and read books at the you know, yes. in the middle of the night. It's a bit of a luxury compared to what a lot of people, you know, get. What book do you reach for in those early hours? What's your insomnia reading? Well, it's very strange you ask me that because I've literally this morning finished three or four books which I received at Christmas. I've just finished uh, Jennifer Bickerdyke's biography of Nico, the Velvet Underground singer, a book by Stuart McConey on the welfare state. I've finished David Storey's memoir, and a book by Dylan Jones on the new romantics called Sweet Dreams. I'm a big, I'm, I'm very interested in music. Okay. Uh, and I do read a lot of biography and military history. Um, and they're, they're big books and they engage you. Yes, there's quite an interesting mix there. Sorry, who did you say the um, the Welfare State book was by? It's by Stuart McConey, the music critic and the Radio 6 oh, music man. Oh, yes. Uh, he's called The Nanny State Made Me. And the premise is that people use the refer to the phrase nanny state in a derogatory sense now. But The Nanny State Made Me, the National Health Service. I was educated free of charge. I went to university free of charge. Yeah. I went on to the dole free of charge, put on employment schemes free of charge. I suspect I was one of the truly last socially mobile people at the expense of the state. Uh, and so I was intrigued to see what he... I've read other Stuart McConey books, his popular musical histories, and it was an, it's an interesting book. It's an easier read than the Nico biography. Oh, okay. Which tends to descend into drugs and rock and roll. Yes, I think we've had that book in the shop. It does look very interesting. And this ties in nicely because my next question was about a recent book that you had read that had, you know, made an impression on you. Would it be any of those that you have listed, the ones that you finished this morning? Or, or is there another one that comes to mind? I'm loath to recommend books because it obviously says more about me than the book itself. Yeah, but course, the Stuart yeah. McConey book, it's a very personable, companionable kind of book. And okay. he isn't afraid of pulling a few punches. He wears his politics on his sleeve, but then most people do nowadays. Yes. And I do, I can recommend writers. I, I you know, I'm happier. I have a very, very strange, eclectic taste in reading and writing. And I often get more pleasure out of badly written books or poorly written books rather than I do out of books which are meant to be good for me or incredibly well written. I'm a great fan, for instance, of H.E. Bates, not the Larkin novels necessarily, which have just been on television, but the man wrote a hundred books of short stories and novels. And I find looking back at my own early work, I probably took more from H.E. Bates than anyone else that I can think of. Ah, oh, so that's interesting. So when you say sort of books that are not necessarily considered well-written, you know, are you talking of books that are merely there to be enjoyable and are not necessarily going into a cerebral realm? It's interesting because people can be quite sort of snobby about that. But for you, do you feel 
Is it more about the story? Is that the thing that really takes you in? I think it's because I probably want different things from different books at different times. I'm a great yeah. reader of crime fiction, American crime fiction in particular. And people always say to me at, at festivals and the like, who is the best writer in the world? Well, of course, it's a ridiculous question. But there's a guy called James Lee Burke, an American crime writer in New Orleans and Louisiana, who has now published, I think, probably 40 or 50 novels. He's in his mid to late 80s. And his writing is incredibly good. And the response to that from a lot of people is, but he's a crime writer. Mm. And I think, well, you know, you can still write well and be a cr- writing about yes. crime. And it's very, of course, it's very popular now, crime yes. fiction. And I, I do consume as much as possible of it. Because I want an hour's good read at night without having to remember what I've read first thing in the morning. Yes. Uh, and if I want some detailed history or biography, then, you know, I'll, I'll take that when my brain's ready for it. I'm not snobby about, I hope I'm not snobby about books because I've, I've written a lot of books about a lot of different things. Mm. Uh, and I enjoy that kind of freedom and variety. And I did write some crime novels myself, but I didn't want to become a crime writer because it would have just restricted my imagination eventually, mm. I think. Yes, I get the sense sometimes when I'm speaking to other authors that if they ever decide that they want to write something that would come strongly under a particular genre, that they get a bit sort of concerned about suddenly then either the industry or readers going, ah, so this is what you do, you do this thing, as opposed to, you know, being a writer who, you know, from book to book might change, you know, quite wildly sometimes what they do. Um, So when you say you were sort of apprehensive about that, is that what you mean? You were sort of concerned you might be then shoehorned or categorised as a crime writer? Yes, I, I, that was that's exactly it. I mean, if you can write well, you can hopefully write about anything you want to write about. Yeah. I tend to have written along certain lines. Yeah. Most people, there was always this term middle brow fiction, literary fiction. And sometimes that's a good thing. And sometimes it's not a good thing. Oh, it's literary fiction. It's not for me. Oh, how middle brow. Uh, and I think the subject, the subject of a book will carry most people along. Most people, it's very difficult. It's difficult for a writer to read a book and not see bad writing some books Mm. I'll read them and I cannot see through the writing I can see people striving for effect left right and center I'm a great believer in the writer being more or less a piece of glass between the subject and the reader and I'm a bigger believer in the reader bringing a lot of themselves to the book I've written a few novels about real people, P.T. Barnum, John Franklin for the Northwest Passage, Alistair Crowley, Branwell Bronte, Ivor Gurney And I enjoy writing that kind of book, not because I want my reader to already know about these people, but simply to have an idea which I can then go into flesh out and allow the reader to bring a bit of themselves to the book. I'm not a great fan of overwritten books which tell you everything about everybody and everything that happens. I'm quite happy for people to wonder what is happening at my suggestion. If the reader brings something of themselves to a book, they probably get more out of it. And it's very easy, and I I can prove this immediately. If I just write the word mother and 100 people read it, I get 100 impressions of what a mother is and what she looks like and what she does. If I then say black-haired mother 
I've probably lost 80 of those readers because it isn't their mm. mother all of a sudden. If I then reduce that to a black-haired, one-legged mother, I've lost all those readers. Just say mother and you get a 100 people's understanding of what a mother is. To yes. over-describe that mother and they're looking at someone else and not yeah. the mother. And it, it works. My first drafts are often twice the size of the finished book because I'm very uncontrolled in my first drafts. I tend to write and write and write very, very quickly, massively, and then stop and then go back. Most of my writing is revising and I do it all in longhand. I'm, I'm terrible on a keyboard. I'm very incredibly slow. And so I use the typing up process as part of my revision. If my fingers are hurting, I start leaving out adjectives and adverbs. It often takes me longer to type a book up than it does to write it. Uh, you know, and I can't hand my handwriting over to anybody because it's illegible, even to me. Yes. I imagine that some stuff gets changed also just in sort of lost in translation between handwriting and, you know, oh, I think I must have meant this. Yes. And, and, if, and if you can't read a word, it makes you think again, what word am I striving for here? And did I get the right one the first time yes. round? I did with smaller pieces occasionally try typing them out first thing, but you get something that looks very finished very quickly and it tends to dictate how you revise that thing. You work along the lines of the typed product. I'm so used now not to having a finished product until the very last moment that I can trust the process as opposed to how the thing looks. And I enjoy it. I put a pencil and pieces of paper in my hand and it does, it does tend to get my imagination working. Sitting mm. looking at a keyboard tends to just blank me out some mornings. Yes, they can be a bit... I've heard other people sort of say that, uh, you know, a computer can be almost like looking down a well. You know, it sort of sucks you in, but not necessarily in the most productive way. It offers distractions or it offers that gleaming electronic white page, which... I certainly agree, is more threatening than a simple piece of paper. Well, that is exactly true. I am threatened by technology. The computer I work on normally is about 20 years old now. I think it was... No, uh, yes, w Windows 95 and 96, I think. Oh, okay, uh, and yes. I bought it secondhand. Oh, I, 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 use yeah. it as a t I use it as a typewriter, really. A typewriter attached to a printer, yes. which saves a lot of time. And I love it for that. And when I first got it, when I first bought it, I paid about 50 quid for it. And it's still working now. But when I got it, the friend who set it up for me, I said, take all the icons off of it. And he said, no, let me leave them on. Let me leave the games and everything on. And I said, yes. no, because I will go wandering amongst these icons yeah. and yes. end up lost. And I won't know how to get back. It's a very telling thing about my technological competence. I did not know until about three years ago that the little backward facing arrow at the top of the screen allows me to undo Oh, yes. Something yeah. I'd just done and that I can go backwards and backwards. But then I had a horrible fear of someone liking a, a, a Kafka-esque story of a man writing a novel <laughs> and then falling asleep and his head hitting the little backward arrow. And it, in the space of an hour, it just went click, 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 click. And when he woke up, the novel had disappeared. Oh, everything's gone. Just that white page again facing them. <laughs> that is the nightmarish image. I like, well, you know, technology can be, you know, certainly working in a bookshop, 
you know, you come across all aspects of society and, you know, technology has moved on so much in the last 50 years, but also the last 20. And it it seems to accelerate as well. Uh, The job we're doing as booksellers is actually something that could be done at home in terms of helping someone. Or, you know, I can remember a book, it was by this author, but I can't remember the title, things like that. And we go looking for that. So many people have such a different connection to technology you know, I'm not one of these people who just seems to know computers. They just have like almost like a natural connection to it. Yes, I, I understand that exactly. It's a very difficult thing to explain to people nowadays, especially younger people who've grown up within a technological age. But I do remember as a child wondering how televisions worked. At a, day, mm. at a time when there were one or two channels to watch on the television, mm. I did used to, and I still don't know. I still don't know how televisions get all those people and countrysides and towns inside that little flat screen. And part of me with computers is mm. that little boy. I still, my wife is incredibly capable and technological. And she, she, my wife will say, right, I've taken a photograph. There it is. It's on a file. There it is. I've sent it off to the newspaper. Go away. And I will think, well, how on earth has a photograph gone into the computer and then to a newspaper office somewhere else? Yes. But what I do find interesting is how modern technology appropriates all the language of reading. You read people, you talk to them, you turn a page, you look at a file. It's all the old language, which I do object to. I'm thinking, no, you're not turning a page on a computer. You're simply staring at a screen. I'm not yes. I'm not frightened of it because it doesn't affect my creative capabilities or process. No. It simply then frustrates when I'm not part of the same world as other people. And everyone who knows me will tell you that I am more or less caught in about uh, I don't know. I like to think 1910. I'd like to think I was moving into the late 20th century. I'm certainly not living in the 21st century. I still buy things like I still buy things like vinyl. I still have a vast vinyl collection. But even I know that CDs are the way forward. Yes, I mean it's interesting though because there is a um. I won't, I I could derail us here and we'd end up not talking about books, but there is an interesting thing where a lot of people who've grown up with technology are now turning to things like vinyl, which is very interesting, but I could end up derailing us here off the subject of books. Well, no, but you can keep it on the rail of books because people want physical books still. Kindles came and went by and large. People actually, and, and there's a great deal of psychology involved in picking a book up and holding it and reading it, mm. and it's important. And people always say, oh, books, they're so expensive. But I think a book is 10 quid, and it might give you 50 hours of entertainment. Yeah. And it will be something that will distract you from all the concerns and worries in life. And it's an incredibly important thing to have. Why do people keep books? Why have I mm. got I don't know, 10,000 books in my house. Why have I got a couple of thousand albums? Why do I hang on to them? Why do people on Zoom calls always want a bookcase full of books in the background? Yes. It's, it's a very strange thing, a book, and I, I think it's much misunderstood. But I, I, they are important things. They do furnish a lot of rooms. I could hold the screen up around this room and it would be an impressive sight to behold. Of books, yeah, books stacked upon books. Yes, we certainly find that being in the book selling industry is we certainly have found that there is a, a great continuation but also renewed interest in books as a physical thing and you know there was this talk it was probably 15 years ago now or even longer of you know the idea that the book was going to 
disappear as a physical thing because of things like Kindles or e-readers. And it just hasn't been the case at all. You know, people love the physical aspect of reading. I just feel something about holding a book, turning the pages. I, I don't know. It just... I, I, I think that's true. I think it's very important that people are by themselves. It's a very active activity. It isn't, it isn't passive reading a book. It's a very active thing. The only mm. time I think books, do, uh, an audio book, for instance, does gain is if you're reading a celebrity memoir, for instance, or a book written by someone with a voice. I've just read John Cooper Clark's autobiography, and I know a couple of friends who are listening to it on audio book. Yeah. His voice is so distinctive, yes. I can understand why you might want to listen to him reading it. I have listened to, to, to poets reading their work, and it suddenly makes sense you pick up a book of wb yeats's poetry and read it and you think this is a lot of convoluted poetry yes. then you you hear a recording of wb yeats reading that poetry and you realize oh my god it's this it yeah. isn't what i thought it was but yes, the, the physicality of a book for me is paramount. I've yeah. never read a Kindle. I've never read an e-book. All I've got are inflammatory dust collecting books. Yes. <laughs> a question I do want to ask, which I'm aware is a very big question, is so we've discussed sort of, you know, your early reading, you know, recent books that you've read. But the big question is a book that changed your life. Is there anything that springs to mind? Honestly, I would have to say no to that because I tend to, like most people, engage with the book I'm reading at the time. Uh, yeah. I do read enormous histories. And I remember 20 years ago reading Anthony Beaver's History of Stalingrad and thinking this is history that will engage with people who have no interest in history. It was one of the reasons I did start reading military histories after that, because it, perhaps it was my commando comics as a child, but I do possess Shelby Foote's three-volume history of the American Civil War, oh, each wow. one of which is a thousand pages long. And I read them and I, I'm in awe of the amount of energy and work and imagination that goes into them. I'm mm. a flibbertigibber. I will write a book for two months. I will revise it for two months and then I will forget all about it myself. And people who spend their lives studying and writing and structuring and controlling mm. such vast amounts of information, I have an immense respect for. Uh, I just do not have that kind of synthesizing mind but I would recommend anyone who's vaguely interested in military history to read any of Anthony Beaver's books yeah. or James Holland's books, for that matter. They're, they're more popular histories. And most men and boys are vaguely interested in that kind of thing uh, of my generation, because we grew up, of course, with the Second World War 10 years behind us. Mm. It seems to be forever snapping on the heels of some people. Yeah, there certainly is, a, you know, we, we regularly sell in the shop these sort of big military history books. And yeah, I'm always equally impressed by anyone who can take disparate pieces of research, you know, a letter they've read, one library over here, another document that they've come across over here. And, you know, they bring that all together and suddenly they've got a chapter that reads in a very human way. Because, you know, it would be very easy just to document these things. This person said this and then this happened and sort of knock it out. But when you sort of get a sense of the place and if not individual emotions, but the general sort of feel of a place at that time is a great skill. 
Yes, I, I've just read a book on the Scottish clearances, the Highland clearances, which coincidentally took place all over Scotland. It's a vast book, a, a vast amount of information. I have nothing but respect for people. And the amount of information uh, that you would probably have to hold in massive piles of paper and computer files, it just beggars belief where I'm concerned. I've got the kind of brain that likes one problem at a time, and I like to clear it out at the end of each week. Uh, and then have a drink on Friday night thinking that's it, the week is finished. I don't want to be thinking about this over the weekend. I'll start again on Monday. And I suspect some people cannot do that. If you're a 200-page, 300-page novelist, you can do that happily. You probably need to do it. Uh, That's very interesting then, because if we start talking about your book, because am I right in saying this is your first memoir or book in which you've spoken about your own life as opposed to either the lives of others, because you've mentioned that you've written about real people before. Did you feel, was there was there a great difference in how you approached that book? You know, because you talk about sort of clearing the fire, as it were, at the end of every week. This is looking back into the archives and, and putting stuff out. So was there a, a difference there? There was an incredible difference because it was pointed out to me that I've never written, apart from my crime trilogy, I've never written about contemporary Britain. I've never written about my life, about the lives of people I know and understand. I've always managed to reimagine the lives of others and the the times and places of others. This memoir came about because during lockdown, I decided, well, A, there were two strands to it. Firstly, I grew a little bit weary of reading memoirs, which began my great-great-great-grandfather arrived in Liverpool from County Fermanagh with four turnips and a donkey. And I thought, no, you you don't know that. You cannot know how your great-great-great-grandfather came. And so what I decided to do was, I'm 65 now, and I decided there are stories, there are memories that I have that have been part of my personal psychological narrative and structure for all those decades. And I decided to capture them, to write them down, just to make sure they were in some kind of printed form. And what I decided to do, I kept everything true, kept everything real, but kept everything even truer to my memory and understanding of that event. Rather than ask people, when did this happen? Who was involved? What was the outcome? I've repeated what I remember as the outcome, what I remember happening. Mm. And even though a few smaller facts are wrong, you know, dates and places and distant cousins' names, the 50 or 60 little chapters in the book, and they're vignettes rather than chapters. Mm. Uh, The book is subtitled Scenes of a Childhood. So they are, and there are 20 bits and pieces of people I remember, a dozen cases of big events I remember, places I went to that I remember. I wrote them all up as separate pieces, and then, like a lot of my novels, I juggled all 60 sections into place. A lot of my novels I've written in separate pieces and then created a structure for them. And partly that is because I can't think of any other way of doing that particular book, and partly because the reader thinks, oh, I didn't expect that, or, oh, what's going to happen next? Uh, And so the memoir, and the second strand for the memoir, during lockdown... I became very lazy. I ended up reading every book I hadn't read in the house because I had to catch up on things. Uh, And then I thought, I'll just do this writing for my own sort of personal benefit and, you know, and satisfaction, really. Uh, And then it became it turned into a book and was published 
by a small press to begin with and then it was taken up by Swift Books who repackaged it into a, a new edition mm. and I've never I've, I'm not particularly interested in people <clears throat> understanding my background or understanding how I lived but I did feel there was a dearth of of this kind of background being represented in fiction uh, yes. royalty and uh, and celebrity yeah. have always dominated the lists you've only got to look down the best-selling lists for everything uh, and celebrities there and I, I know I'm, you know, I'm a published writer, so that probably qualifies me in most people's eyes for being not anonymous. But these were anonymous lives lived by millions of people, working people. And I just thought it was it might be interesting to look at how there's a commonality. Look at how that commonality plays through the 50s, the 60s, the 70s. Most people of my generation share almost identical memories about drinking and smoking and meeting girls and going on holiday and Christmas and yeah. parental oversight. And it, it's yeah. been quite intriguing. Why do we share memories which we can, they're, they're almost replicates of each other. Yeah. Is that to do with the way we remember them or the facts we remember or the way we retell them? So what I wanted to do with this book, in addition to just satisfying my own need to scratch that itch, which I've never, ever felt before, and I may never feel again, was to just be as honest as I could with the memories yes. and just to contribute to this overall stream of forgotten histories. I would say that's something that struck me as well. Um, and you mentioned, sorry, that this book came about, you said during lockdown, was that correct? Yes. Yeah, and do you think anything about that particular situation had you you talked about it as like a an itch that needed scratching do you think there was anything about that particular situation that brought on that particular itch I'm not sure I think it was a strange period of course because it was the first time in our lifetime where something literally could come out of the blue and kill you uh, I don't want to mm. overstate this or sound overly dramatic because I'm a, I'm a fairly pragmatic and realistic person, but I'm also 65, yeah, you know, and it, there were, for the first time in my life, there was the need to consider, you know, what you could and couldn't do, partly because we were forced to and partly because we were in technically and theoretically a dangerous situation. Mm. Uh, and I'm 65 and I'd never, never thought of, about my own mortality prior to that. I'd never, you know, when people said, oh, it's a dangerous age to be. I thought, well, no, it, how can that be true? How can how can being 65 be dangerous all of a sudden? How can I, I don't want to be called vulnerable. I know what vulnerable is. I don't want to be called vulnerable just because I'm an age. But it did psychologically affect everybody in the country for, mm. for ill or good. And I think people began to consider what mattered. People began to draw in loose ends. I've had friends who've been incredibly ill. I know a, a lot of people who've died, not necessarily mm. directly of coronavirus, but who've died of, of other things. And we may just be extra conscious and aware of these things, of course, now. But people's lives have changed. And if that doesn't make you look at how you do things and what you want to do, then probably something is wrong with you. Because in addition to being a frightening time, it was also a great opportunity. You know, I think that's probably one of the reasons people did go back to reading books and writing mm -hmm. letters and talking again. Yeah. You know, if, if we can't go out to a pub, if we can't go to a yeah. restaurant easily, if you can't go and sit in a crowded cinema or theatre, you've got to find ways of being the person you were and hopefully, you know, becoming that person again 
and hopefully a little bit of a better person after two years of restriction and, you know, constraint. Yeah, absolutely. It certainly has touched everyone's lives in some way. And I think has also had a lot of people, yeah, considering their place in the world as well, as I think, you know, from a lot of people I've spoken to, it's had them thinking about, you know, the world that they live in and how do they fit in um, within that which is interesting because then you said you talked about your book being a sort of a documentation of lives that aren't typically seen or documented and went by almost unnoticed. You know, I particularly was struck by that with um, a passage that you talk about the woman who would visit your house was at the same time every month in order to borrow money off your mother. You know, she lived at at the end of the street in a very sort of dilapidated house and you know, that's a good example of someone whose life could go by completely sort of undocumented, unnoticed. Yes, I do remember uh, the book contains, I don't know, 10 or a dozen of these characters. Mm. Uh, and, and all of them tend to represent something about my childhood and about Sheffield in those days. The woman you're referring to is a woman called Mrs. Wilson. Yeah. And she lived, she was a yeah. widow. And she was probably only in her late 60s, which was most people died in their 60s when I was a boy. And she lived. She had an incredibly impoverished life uh, and she must have lived on a very poor pension in a very, very dilapidated terrace house. It literally had broken windows and the garden, the tiny back garden was filled with bottles and rubbish. And I do remember, as did a lot of people, she did smell. Mrs. Wilson smelled. When she came into your house, you could smell her. Uh, And I think this was true of a lot of people. She came round every Friday evening at about six o'clock and asked my mum to borrow either 10 shillings or 15 shillings, 50 pence or 75 pence. And we basically knew she was going to spend it on drink in the corner shop or in a working man's club just up the road from where we lived. But there was a pact between Mrs. Wilson and my mum. My mum didn't have much money, but there would be 10 shillings found for Mrs. Wilson. And Mrs. Wilson would then make a point three or four days later when her pension came of bringing the money round to my mum and paying it back and saying, there, we're straight. But then three days later, at ten past five on Friday afternoon, she would turn up again. And, but it was, a, it was a thing they both got something out of. My mum enjoyed helping her. My mum was very generous. And Mrs Wilson yeah. enjoyed paying the money back. But I do remember, I'm not, I'm not sort of demeaning her, but, but I do remember the smell. Uh, of Mrs. Wilson. She wore an old gabardine raincoat, which was always tightly fastened. She smoked, she smelled of smoke, and she carried a string basket in which there would invariably be a few empty bottles. Mm. And her house was surrounded by empty beer bottles. Uh, And she was a strange character, but there were a lot of widowers and widows living in 60s Sheffield. And I can only think that, you know, they might have been widowed by the war looking back. Yes. Again, another thing I remember, you talked about men of your generation enjoying military history because of that thing of growing up with the war sort of at your heels. And you even talk about the fact that in Sheffield, there were still buildings that had war damage when you were a boy and that, you know, not only had it marked the people, but it still marked the landscape then in some ways as well. Yes. 
it was a massive part of Sheffield in the 60s, the war. It had been very heavily bombed because of the steel, the, the mining industries which surrounded Sheffield and the heavy steel industry of the Don Valley. It was very heavily bombed, Sheffield, and it didn't really recover for a long, long time. It hadn't recovered by the time I left 20 years later. Parts of modernity had arrived in South Yorkshire. Leeds and Manchester always seemed to benefit to the eyes of the people in Sheffield. I do remember just before I left Sheffield, a giant subway was built in the middle of the town and we went underground to come up and into the city centre. But churches were derelict. There were gaps in the houses which were left derelict. And there were giant bulks of timber propping houses. And they were still there for 20, 30, 40 years after the war. It was a strange place to live in that it was striving, Mm. I think, not to be the old heavy industrial place. But it, it really didn't have a purpose for 20 or 30 years. It had nowhere to go. And then I moved from Sheffield to Hull which in the mid-70s lost its fishing industry. And it then became a city without its future in sight. I'm not saying these are great disadvantages, but they're places where a thing is neither one thing nor another. Yes, so a space that's been, you know, it's sort of been built for one purpose or its infrastructure has been built for one purpose and then that purpose goes. And, you know, there's this period of 20, 30 years, as you say, where a new one hasn't been found. Um... Well, I think looking at that time, that brings us to an end. It's been a great pleasure talking with you and talking about your new book, My Own Worst Enemy, which comes out on the 24th of February. And of course, we'll be stocking it here at most of the books. You said it was with a smaller publisher, but now it's coming out with Swift. And how does it feel, this one, as it's come from your own personal experiences? It's difficult. I do admit it's a different kettle of fish having your own history analysed as opposed to the book you've written analysed. But you know what, I've spent 35 years writing books, listening to critics tell me about the book I've just spent a year writing and telling me what I got wrong and how I could have written a different book and a better book if I'd done something else. Of course, and I'm always reminded when you sometimes you give a talk or a reading uh, and you say, any questions? And someone puts their hands up and you say, yes, what is it? And they say, why don't you write a bestseller? (laughs) (laughs) I love that that question as if as if that's the easy bit just waking up one day and going this will be a bestseller (laughs) well it's certainly incredibly engaging but you know when I started reading it the first chapter really does take you in and it's a wonderful as you say sort of documentation these scenes of a I hope you don't mind me saying of a sort of bygone era now of you know a a world that has in many ways disappeared and I'm sure it will find a great readership. So thank you very much for joining us on Mostly Books Meets. Thank you. All of the books mentioned during the podcast are available to buy from the Mostly Books website. This podcast has been presented and produced by members of the team at Mostly Books in Abingdon. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate, review and subscribe because apparently it helps people find us.